You're listening to From the Clubhouse, a National Club Golfer podcast. Crail Golfing Society is the seventh oldest club in the world. It plays host to thousands of visitors every year, enchanted by the stunning sea views on the Fife coast and a balcony layout designed by old Tom Morris. But while domestically at least, the coronavirus pandemic has handed golf a most unlikely fillip, for those courses and businesses that rely on international tourism, the reality is somewhat different. In a House of Commons debate, North East Fife MP Wendy Chamberlain outlined the bleak prospects that could await if tough international travel restrictions are still in place this summer. She revealed that Crail Golfing Society lost £600,000 in visitor revenue last year. And so I sat down with the club's general manager, David Roy, to talk about how they're getting through COVID-19 and what lies ahead in 2021. David, welcome to the From the Clubhouse podcast. Steve, lovely, lovely to be here. Um, for those who haven't been, um, tell me a little bit about Crail Golfing Society and the two wonderful courses you've got there. Well, Crail Golfing Society was instituted on the 26th of February, 1786. But we know that they played golf in Crail from about the 1720s. In fact, the club was formed in the Golf Hotel in Crail, and it was called the Golf Hotel at the time. So it shows you how long they had been playing golf. Now, back then, as you know, there was only a handful of clubs in the world and in Scotland. So they were one of the originators of the game. And they encountered all the same problems with um, using common ground as all the other clubs did. So when we know this for a fact because there was a, a high court a high court case uh, brought against a farmer in Creole who had paid a young boy to drive cattle at a gallop up and down the, the links, this is Sohope links near to the village, to ruin it for the golfers. Um, so we know that the uh, other users of the common ground didn't really appreciate the golfers using it as a golf course. So where we play now is a place called Balcomi, and that is actually the second golf course that the, the society used. It was a tenanted farm, and the, the farmer was one of the um, members. So he said, come out to my place, and you can use uh, Balcomi. So it dates from about 1850. We know the first medal was played there in 1850 and make, makes it one of the oldest golf courses in the world. Um, the fact that it was built on, they, they were playing on common ground, and similar to St Andrews and North Berwick, Montrose, um, Carnoustie, all these places. Um, of course, it means that Crail is interlinked with the use of the course for visitors. So it's always been a club, just like St Andrews, it's always been a club that has shared the links, shared the facilities um, with anybody who wishes to come and play. So that's the culture of the club. And then in 
because there was so much, it was quite, Balcombe is a relatively short course, and because there was so much pressure on the tee sheet, the, in the 1990s, the club decided to build another golf course when a, a neighbouring farm came up for sale. So they built Craighead Links, and just by happenstance, because the architect happened to be a friend of the golf professional, it became the first course ever designed by Gil Hans, or his first solo design, to be accurate. And he stayed in the village for a year, and as he still does today, work, operates the, the earth-moving equipment and does the shaping. And uh, if you play any Gilhans course, you can see some of the some of the the design characteristics that he enjoys. You can see certainly at, at his first course at Craighead. So that's it in a nutshell. And the clubhouse is a remarkable building. Really, it always seems to me to be part restaurant, part museum. <laughs> Well, that's quite interesting because the original clubhouse is still there and it's the it's just been extended around the outside. And it was built by the town council in 1901. The town council recognised that the, the railways brought Victorian Edinburgh and Glasgow visitors to the east coast of Fife, or what is known as East Nuke, and they recognised that golf was very important for tourism. So they built the clubhouse really to look after the visitors, but the, the club members were the happiest, happy recipients. So the club has actually only owned the clubhouse and the golf course since 1972. Um, when we did a major refurbishment uh, 10 years ago, the architect was given the brief that the heritage of the club would be predominant and the views of the sea would be the would be almost of equal significance so he deliberately designed it so that when you walked in the front door you would be surrounded by the club's trophy cabinet and history so you get an, an idea that you're an old club and then the first thing you see out the windows is the sea and uh, that's exactly what happens and lots of people comment on that it has to be one of the best views in golf uh, it is if you if you ever get the chance to go up there um it is an incredible, incredible view. And um, the, the first five holes in particular, and obviously the last four holes, I believe, um, are focused really around that coastal route. And it's just, it's just an astonishing um, passage of golf. Yeah, it's Crail's unique because we've got, obviously got 36 holes. It's the only golf club where you see the sea from every single one of the 36 holes. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. So you, you talked earlier on, David, about the culture of visitors always having been prevalent at Crail. Um, it's the 200th uh, anniversary of Tom Morris's birth this year in June, and, and clearly, obviously, Tom Morris designed the Balcomi links. Presumably, um, in normal times, you would have been looking forward to a very busy year, uh, not only as golfers flock up to Fife to celebrate the old man of golf, but also because uh, international visitors in particular are such an important part of your offering. So how does 2021 look? Yeah, the visitor experience is, is very interesting with a club like Creel. And as I say, it's similar to many clubs that, that are built on common ground. It's so deeply embedded at Creel that some of our golf competitions are actually, were originally designed for with visitors in mind. So we have three competitions that are played over a two-week period, because at one time, um, back in the 60s, um, the town council would sell a fortnightly ticket, a two-week ticket, 
to visitors, and they were deemed to be members for that two weeks. So we have three quite old competitions, um, and as I say, they played over the two weeks because the visitors would take part in them. That shows you how deeply embedded it is. So we would traditionally host about 10,000 uh, visitors in the year. Now, back in the 70s, they were almost exclusively uh, the UK market, um, mostly Scots and, and obviously England. But with the advent of budget, budget airlines and certainly cheap transatlantic flights, uh, as you know, the golf tourism industry grew up um, and it has obviously expanded quite quickly. Consequently, a, n under normal circumstances, a full third of our 10,000 visitors would be from America. Um, and the next 40% will be Scandinavia and Western Europe. That's, that's how important the overseas golf tourism market is to a club like Crail. To put this into perspective, um, there's between 70 and 100 golf facilities in Scotland that attracts the vast, vast majority of incoming overseas golf tourism. And they know from the Scottish Enterprise have done fairly accurate studies on this. They know that that is worth at least 300 million to the Scottish economy. And of course, that's incoming money. So that's, um, that's attracting foreign investment. And at 300 million, again, to put this in perspective, it, um, it places it more valuable in turnover than the Scottish fishing, fishing industry. Um, they, we, again, they know because they track these things, um, the number one reason for uh, tourists coming to Scotland will be genealogy. Uh, number two will be walking sort of outdoor recreation style um, uh, ex explorations. Um, and number three is golf. The, the thing that sets golf apart, however, from genealogy, business tourism, mountain biking and so on is that the multiplier uh, for every pound that a golf to incoming golf tourist spends you know how is that multiplied the multiplier is about 2.6 compared to a one-on-one -on -one for these other um, industries so consequently when an american comes across it's not just the green fee it's the green fee the um, tour bus or rented car and um, the accommodation uh, buying souvenirs at the shop, um, taking on a caddy, and so on and so on. So they typically are the most lucrative forms of golf uh, of tourists and come to Scotland. So it's worth a great deal of money to the whole economy and supports the reckon about ten thousand jobs. Well, I mean that's an incredible figure for a multiplier because I think it's easy for people to compute. Um, visitors can't come because of travel restrictions. We lose this green fee. Um, but it's all the other things around that, isn't it? Isn't it that's the real problem as well? In the, as you say, you know, meals, accommodation, transport, um, people in the pro shop. It's a huge network. It is, and um, the other thing is that these are specialist skills. Um, it doesn't feel as if, uh, from the outside looking in, um, it doesn't. It shouldn't appear to be a specialist skill but we know from dealing with specialist transport providers that drivers are brilliant at what they do 
So we'll get a call from the driver of um, St. Andrew's Executive Travel, for example, just based up the road, as you can imagine, do a lot of trade with them. So they pick up their American tour party from the airport and they'll take them round for a week or two around Scotland. We'll get a phone call from the driver uh, who's leaving Carnoustie and he'll say, by the way, um, the Jacobson party are just leaving Carnoustie. We might be 15 minutes late Um, or... Um, they might be leaving um, Muirfield and, and they'll say, you know, it's the, it's the Smith party and um, just checking you, you've got 12 caddies lined up for them. It's that level of, of as I say, attention to detail. And it's not just the, the transport providers, it's the local accommodation providers as well. Um, they know who to recommend um, in terms of golf. They know who to call. They know, they'll give tips on, you know, who the caddy master is. So it's a, a reasonably sophisticated sort of close linked industry, uh, which as a result that when Americans and, you know, Scandinavians do turn up, it feels like a good quality experience. It, it feels relatively simple. And as I say, you're being well looked after. So you might not always get the best weather, but you usually get the best hospitality. And, and that, that is commented on a lot. That's, that's not just anecdotal, that has been evidenced. So there was a general belief last summer that golf boomed in the UK as um, people who couldn't do other activities that they might have taken part in usually flocked to golf, either in terms of membership in particular or um, trying to take up whichever tee times that were left. Um, I imagine that you benefited from that to some extent, but given that your um, your revenue um, expectations are weighted quite strongly, as, as you said earlier, towards visitors. I mean, how, how did 2020 go? Did you experience um, a significant loss? Yes, as you can imagine, uh, with no flights coming in, um, we had, before the year even started, we had 5,000 rounds already booked in and either fully paid or paid a deposit. So we had uh, a liability um, of well over a quarter of a million pounds on the books. So last April, when when this really kicked in, we were really drawn up doomsday scenarios. We were drawn up scenarios of, scenarios of halving the number of staff and mothballing areas of the club, perhaps even going down to one golf course. We didn't know at that early stage, we didn't know how many members were going to stick with the club um, you know, if they weren't getting access to the facilities, would we have a significant amount of resignations? You know, would, as I say, would it be a doomsday scenario? Thankfully, thankfully, a half, a full 50% of those people that were booked to play, as I say, just over 2,000 rounds of golf by this stage, they rescheduled to 2022. So about £125,000 we we paid back about that about 125, but retained 125 as a liability on our books. We also um, clearly were able to utilise some of the home market um, restricted, as you say, a restricted amount of months, restricted amount of travel. But um, we we did welcome a good number of Scots and and uh, uh, the rest of the UK came, so we did okay in the end. But but we still draw our, our visitor income dropped by more than six hundred thousand pounds. That's an incredible amount of money. Um, and presumably it was money you already budgeted for. Yeah, so um, that being a non-profit making organisation, um, that mo- and 100% of that money goes straight back into facilities. 
So we had planned to replace, you know, Fairway Moor and Greens Moors and, um, you know, repair the car park and, you know, fix the roof. Um, all these reasonably large scale capital projects, they all had to be put on ice. Um, so what we expected was we would be able to just reschedule all that to, to this year. And we imagined that at some point this year, the, the planes would start flying again. Um, you know, a year, almost a year on, um, I don't know how realistic that is. I don't know how realistic it is to expect the, as I say, the budget flights and the transatlantic flights to start landing in Edinburgh again. I don't know when that's going to happen. Wendy Chamberlain, the North Fife MP, um, outlined uh, some of the difficulties that um, businesses who rely on international tourism were facing in a adjournment debate in the House of Commons, and she painted a pretty bleak picture. I mean, she, she basically said if, um, if there's uh, not enough government support this year, then businesses are going to go to the wall as a result of this. I mean, do you think that the, the possible situation um, in your part of the world is that bleak if we don't see wholesale return of international travel? Undoubtedly. Um, and it's not the businesses that can flex. Uh, in a sense, uh, a private members club like Creole is quite fortunate because of a membership subscription model that we can lean on and fall back on to keep make us viable. But if you are a if you have a fleet of buses and you're geared towards uh, looking after incoming golf tourists, uh, and that is 100% your business, where else are you going to get that trade? And how are you going to manage to keep your liabilities going? Uh, how are you going to keep meeting your rents and rates and so on, your tax tax liabilities, if there's no income at all? And I can clearly see the situation of a lot of these uh, bus bus providers um, having to sell off parts, parts or maybe all of the fleet to to remain viable. In the, in the hope or expectation that they can get going again next year. Um, as I say, and then you've got the tour operators. I mean, as you say in, in the debate, Wendy Chamberlain commented on you know, husband and wife tour operator who rescheduled 100% of the business from 2020 to 2021. And even now that is looking shaky and they're now on universal credit. So how, how are these people going to keep their business going if it's rescheduled again to 2022? It's, it is, a, as you say, it, it's bleak and you don't want to be melodramatic, but these people have nowhere, nowhere else to turn to. Is there a possibility in the future that you might have to lean on your membership? There is, there is an assumption, I think, from some that uh, the large amount of international revenue that you get can help to subsidise membership fees and, and keep them low. Is that, is that something that happens at Crail Golfing Society? And if you haven't got that revenue in the future, might you have to look at subscription increases? Yeah, we, we're no different to Dornoch, Cruden Bay, North Berwick, um, you know, Prestwick, places like that, uh, we all op operate on exactly the same model. Um, and yes, it, the members recognise that the visit revenue, um, as you see, technically subsidises their, their uh, membership subscription, but it's not cost free. It comes at a cost. These members also understand that it's more difficult to get a tee off time at the most popular times of the day. It's more difficult to get a tee-off time, um, even at the weekend at times, uh, if we've got a large party of golfers in. They recognise that if they're teeing off at, at midday, um, they may well be stuck behind three, four balls of Americans, all with caddies. 
Um, now, occasionally, there's a small amount of friction. Um, but to be honest with you, considering the number of visitors that we and, as I say, all these other clubs host, we get very little friction because there is an understanding of that contract. Before even the member joins a club like Creel, they understand that they're signing up to a contract that says your subscriptions are artificially low because you have to share your facilities with several thousand um, visitors. Um, so as I say, it's not cost free. One of the challenges that, and we know this is not exclusive to us, we know this is a global problem. One of the challenges with golf being one of the few sports that is open and can be played is there just physically isn't enough tee times. So all of a sudden our membership model where that says, look, you, you, you're likely only going to pay, play six games in the year, um, 12 games max. A lot of these guys, um, as you say, they might be they might have had to go part-time, they might be furloughed, they might even have lost their job uh, or had to retire early, whatever. A lot more time on their hands. Um, grandparents who normally would have grand uh, would have childcare and duties now are no longer doing that. Maybe the wee part-time job has disappeared. So there is a, dem a real demand for tea times. Um, and to be honest with you, we haven't quite figured out how that's going to pan out. At the moment, the members are restricted to only two games a week, um, which which is certainly managing demand, but that that is still tricky. Uh, yeah, I think actually going forward, that's going to be the biggest challenge for golf clubs. I mean, um, the, the perception of unlimited golf I th uh, that you receive with a full membership, I think is going to be uh, a difficulty in the future as... In England, where obviously I'm recording this from, tea times have been full all summer. I'm sure when we return to golf, they'll be full again. And, you know, the idea of saying to a member, well, you can't play at the time you want to, and when they've paid out a fee on the assumption that they can, relatively speaking, get the tea time so they want, is a difficult conversation to have, isn't it? It is. And in and, and actual fact, it, it, every club is guilty of exactly the same thing. Every, every club of, is guilty of not really explicitly explaining the contract that you sign up to when you join a club. Um, every club, if you say that an average club has somewhere between 500 and 900 members, and you know that there are only 600 effective tea times available uh, throughout the week, um, you are straight away uh, at a risk of you know, more demand than supply. So it, what should really happen is before any member joins, that whole situation needs to be very clearly articulated to say, look, you join in this club, um, you know, we because we have 900 members, it's not going to be, you know, all that easy to always get the time exactly what you want on the day you want. It's a matter of sharing the facilities and it's a matter of being flexible and, um, and being prepared to play with the, with other members and you know share your teeth you know that whole conversation could be done much much more effectively than it is at the moment. So looking ahead um, to this summer, how does 2021 look? I mean, as we stand at the end of January, start of February, new travel restrictions are being brought into place. We really have no idea um, how the pandemic is moving in other parts of the world. I mean, clearly um, our vaccination programs are, are fully a pace and there's the expectation that we might be able to 
um, loosen some restrictions, at least domestically. But internationally, that picture's very much more uncertain. So how does the coming season ahead look for Crail Golfing Society? We uh, came up with exactly the same scenario that you painted just there. Um, once travel restrictions are uh, eased, we anticipate it'll just be the domestic market, certainly fully for the first six months, right up into the end of June. Um, if there's a relaxation or any demand even from the overseas market, we don't anticipate anything happen until the autumn. So we haven't budgeted for um, any significant green fee income until um, late August, September. Um, now, obviously, only time will tell if that, that pans out. So consequently, we, we are having to um, flex our, our business model. And um, as I say, we've already put capital projects on ice. Um, and we're having to look at the home market uh, and in terms of how we can generate the revenues to, as I say, replace the greens moors and fix the roof and fill in the potholes in the car park. And, and restrictions being loosened and increasing consumer confidence of getting on a plane and traveling again are two different things, aren't they? I mean, I wonder whether actually, um, you know, we might have to anticipate 2022 almost as being a year when we see, quotes normality. I agree. The only thing I would add, there's certainly demand. There is, uh, we are still receiving inquiries for this year. There is certainly, um, from overseas uh, golf tourists, there's certainly a demand to travel, um, especially, <laughs> this is quite interesting, a lot of people are looking at access to the trophy courses, you know, the big open championship and tour venue courses. Uh, they're thinking, hmm, this is going to be a better chance this year for us to get a game on the old or Muirfield or Troon or Tunt, whatever. Um, and they're anticipating that the organisation, the booking of the tee times is going to be easier to do. So that is one of the drivers for people to constantly be making inquiries. Also, that is another driver for the domestic market. Um, I've spoken to a number of um, uh, you know, people who are booking a tee time and they've said, oh, normally we'd be going to Algarve or Costa del Sol or Turkey or whoever. Um, however, you know, this year we're thinking we're going to do a bucket list thing. We're going to play the old course um, or wherever, Carnoustie or so on. And so that has been a driver for the domestic market as well. Um, and we can act as a uh, helps us help fill in that, that week if you're coming to Fife. Wait, does that leave you optimistic then? I mean, if the demand wasn't there, if you weren't receiving those international inquiries at this stage you'd be a bit more worried I think wouldn't you but but those but that driver is still there of course there are restrictions in place at the moment but if the demand is still there it's still there eventually you'll be able to satisfy it yeah I interestingly I mean I've I've only ever worked in the golf industry I I don't really have experience of you know of the real world as it were and I've never even when I first came into it I've never shared the pessimism that I've read about um, from commentators or, or, um, or, or even players. I've never shared the pessimism that said, oh, golf is an aging population um, or golf's no good at looking after juniors or you know, golf is mean to women. As I say, I've never shared that pessimism. 
there are a variety of reasons. And this, what we're going through at the moment is a good example. So if you're nervous about um, social activity because of the coronavirus, one of the things that you're looking for is for good behavior from your fellow citizens. One of the things you're looking for is to know to turn up to a, a, um, an environment where it's understood that people behave. Now, golf has a reputation of being reactionary, old-fashioned and stuffy and mired in arcane rules. However, it's the tradition of sticking to rules. It's the tradition of and the culture of honesty and playing the game properly that means that when you turn up, all your fellow members are wearing masks, use hand sanitizers, keep the social distance, and you don't have to touch the flag, and you're not, you know, there's no rakes in the bunkers, and it's actually therefore a really safe and welcoming environment. And that's what we've found. People are saying, actually, you know, golf's a good thing to do at this time. Similarly with juniors, similarly with uh, with mixed couples. We, last year we got a lot more husband and wives playing together, a lot more families playing together. That was very noticeable. So I'm I am optimistic. I'm thinking. I'm looking at all the the increase in memberships across not just the UK but Europe and thinking on a long-term basis this is a good thing this is generating um, for us generating golf tourists of the future but it's also generating potential customers for golf apparel and golf clubs and um, as I say sustaining memberships across Europe so it's not all bad it's certainly not all bad well, David, I wish you all the best at Crail Golfing Society. For anyone listening who hasn't been there, um, please do travel. It's when, when it's safe to do so, it's a fabulous part of the world for golf. Uh, David, thanks for joining us on the From the Clubhouse podcast. Thanks very much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.